Hello, and welcome to Maths Talk by AMC Schools, where conversations in maths become part of your professional learning. I'm Leanne McMahon, Schools Maths Advisor at AMC, and today's episode looks at a vital aspect of great maths teaching, making connections. I'm really pleased to welcome a popular contributor to our show, Michaela Epstein, founder and director of Maths Teacher Circles, and an educator who challenges my thinking on a regular basis. Welcome, Michaela. Thanks, Leanne, and thank you for that very warm welcome. It's great to be joining you again. I do have to say how much I've been enjoying Michaela's Facebook posts with problems that challenge me to really think about how I do maths and what's the best way to teach. I've got to say, they're a lot of fun to put together, so it's nice to hear about how they're received at the other end and it's a little space to be, I think, creative with maths problem solving and without restraint. Now, just before we get on to this exciting topic, can you remind us of where you are with your teacher circles and what you've been doing since last year's very popular problem solving episode? So, yes, I've been thinking about this and there are three big things really with my circles membership program that I've been working on recently. For those of you listening who haven't heard of my program before. It's a maths professional learning program that brings primary and secondary teachers globally together. And so the three things that I've been working on recently, the first one is I launched a private library just in the last month. And that brings together over 30 hours of inspiring professional learning content and curated resources for our members, featuring a whole host of really incredible mathematicians and maths educators from around the world and that's something that we're continuing to add to so it's kind of a a growing resource for our members. One of the other big things I've been working on is putting together our 2024 professional learning program of live workshops. That's going to feature five workshops throughout the year on totally different themes and each of these themes is designed to be quite relevant whether you're teaching in the early years or senior secondary, ideas that kind of get you looking at and thinking about maths in completely new ways. And for each of those sessions, we invite a couple of guest presenters on who choose their favourite maths problems that they take you through. Um, So that's my second one. And the third one is an idea that's kind of been playing around in my head for a while now, and it's the topic of today's conversation around making mathematical connections. And I'll share more of this in a moment, Leanne, but just briefly, it's something that started to infiltrate my thinking everywhere from how I design professional learning and the sorts of prompts and provocations I give to teachers to the kinds of maths tasks I create, like the ones you mentioned that teachers can find on Facebook. And I've started to see so much how connections lie at the heart of mathematical understanding. Well, that leads beautifully into our planned conversation for today. I've invited Michaela to talk about something that caught my eye in an email she sent to her subscribers, using connections in teaching maths. What really piqued my interest was the realisation that one of the most common problems students seem to have with maths is forgetting what they've learnt in previous years or weeks or months or days or hours. So, Michaela, why do students so often forget what they've learned in maths in particular? Uh, it's 
crazy, Leanne, how much of an issue this is. And, you know, when I've been talking to teachers, they tell me, you know, they find themselves reteaching content that they're sure students would have learnt the year before. And they know that it's not because last year's teacher didn't teach them that stuff. Sometimes these teachers were the teacher the year before. So they know that that stuff's been covered. So there's something else that's going on. And I think this is where it gets quite interesting. When you start to look at the curriculum and what gets jam-packed into term planners, you can see that students are trying to learn too much. And so I actually see that if we reframe the way we look at curriculum content, then we can help students to go deeper with their learning, but also far better remember what they're learning over time. And I just want to give a couple of examples that sort of bring this home. So Australia's curriculum documents, whether you're looking at the Australian curriculum, Victorian, wherever you are in the country, pretty much the same in terms of their layout, which is this long linear list of skills, one after another that follows it. Now, this is really helpful for seeing exactly all of the content that's covered. The problem is that it treats every dot point in exactly the same way. Controversially, I want to say that not all dot points are created equally. And actually, some of that content is far more important than others. Now, the implications of having this linear arrangement and treating everything equally is you have something like this. Let's say you're teaching level six fractions. And so you want to teach the content from that level for your students. You've got a three-week topic. And you're going to teach a bit that's above and a bit that's below. If you go to the curriculum, that's 13 dot points. This is the new curriculum, 13 dot points, a bit above level six, a bit below level six that you're going to try and fit in three, let's say three weeks. I'm being generous. Okay. Now, this isn't isolated to level six fractions. I've looked at all different parts of the curriculum. So if we go right down to the very bottom to counting them and the structure of numbers in level one, above, a bit below, we've got 12 dot points. If we go up to the other end to linear equations and expressions around um, level nine, a bit below and a bit above the curriculum, we've got 13 dot points again. So there is so much content all the time that we're just trying to fit in. So if we actually change the way we're looking at this content and we start to think, well, what are the most important skills and content that we want students to understand, like inside out? we put those things first, then we let those other ideas just fall from it. And it kind of becomes a way of filtering the curriculum content, not ignoring some of it, but starting to reprioritize what's there. And how do you work out what's important? Like if you see those 12 dot points, you'd think, oh yes, they need to know what equivalent fractions are. They need to understand numerator and denominator, whatever. How do you say What's important? Yeah, Leanne, I think this is a really interesting question. And there's a couple of ways I've been working with schools to think about this. All of this, I might add, it's another way of labeling it is called a big ideas approach. And we've got some fantastic research that we can draw on. So in Victoria, Di Seaman has done a huge amount of very rigorous research around the big ideas. And so you might use what she's produced as a starting point. And a lot of that deals with multiplicative thinking and place value. There's someone else out of 
North America, Randall Charles, and he has looked at big ideas across all different topics, mainly in the middle school area. So again, you might use Charles's lists as a starting point to think about like how you're going to filter the curriculum content. But then maybe these lists aren't actually enough. Maybe they don't suit, you know, the geometry topic or the statistics topic you've got coming up. So the question that I've been working on with teachers is this. What's the most important thing that you want students to understand by the end of the topic? And we then use this as the focal point for thinking about the teaching and learning that is to come. And when you put this question first and whatever that kind of big idea is, then suddenly all of the lessons that happen throughout that topic keep swinging back to that big idea. You're not just teaching exercise 12B because it's in your textbook. You're teaching exercise 12B because it's going to help students to make important connections to that big idea. Maybe you'll skip over or you'll spend less time on exercise 12C as a result as well. As always, there will be links to the research that Michaela is talking about in our show notes. And I'm wondering, Michaela, if you found something that I've noticed in my reading that different people have different opinions on the big ideas. There was um, a great monograph that Dysamon put together for the Victorian Department of Education. Uh, I think it was released last year. And I found it quite refreshing because in it, she said that there is no agreed list of the big ideas. And you can keep researching and find list after list and there'll be bits of overlap and bits of disagreement. And Di pointed out that actually that's okay. Part of the value of taking on a big ideas approach is not those ideas themselves, but the way it starts to affect your orientation to thinking about the curriculum and the professional conversations you have with colleagues. So we're not just getting through these 15 things in the next three weeks, but we're aiming for this one big idea that we want our students to understand. And so when you're talking about connections to the big ideas, what does it look like in the classroom? Yeah, look, there are different ways that it can look. I think at its simplest is it's a tweaking to existing practice. So I had kind of two extremes of schools in the room at one workshop I was doing in Western Victoria. And there was one school that had been using a big ideas approach for years. And so it, they kind of started from the big idea and, you know, that was the starting point for their planning. And, you know, that was a very kind of normal and routine thing for them. And then there was another school who had been teaching in a more, let's say, traditional way where they were starting from the resource and, you know, knew that there were certain things in the resource that they would then be testing on. And so they wanted to know, well, how do we take this and suddenly bring in a big ideas approach? And so we talked about having that goal in mind of that thing you want students to understand and then making sure every lesson you're linking back to it. So it might be the um, formative assessment questions you ask students or an exit ticket. That's not just what did you learn today, but how does the thing you learned today relate to this other thing? <laughs> okay. It also can affect how you schedule what you're doing in a unit. Typically, you might have spent a lesson on skill A and a lesson on skill B, but actually maybe now you're spending two lessons on skill A. Okay. 
So it can start to affect your pacing as well. It's going to affect your assessment because you might not be as assessing as many things, but you'll be assessing one thing with greater rigor and depth. And like there are just all these little flow on effects. One other area that a lot of teachers start to see quite naturally feels in with, fits in with this is using problem solving and rich open-ended tasks. I like to think of these tasks as an opportunity for students to use what they already know to make new connections. And so if you've got a topic that you're teaching and you know what the big idea is, you choose a rich problem-solving task that fits with that and you're creating these new opportunities for students to kind of consolidate their learning and crystallise the connections to that big idea even more. I really love that idea of tweaking what you're already doing because having been in lots of secondary classrooms, the overriding pedagogy is get out the textbook, explain how to do the exercise, do the exercise, finish it for homework, and make sure you ask if you need any help. Whereas with this approach, as you said, you can still use the textbook and do that exercise. All you're doing is making it meaningful and circumventing the when are we ever going to use this by putting it into context before that dreaded question. I think that just sounds like a fantastic idea and really a no-brainer. That's it. We want students to see the meaning behind what they're doing, not just that they're flipping through exercise after exercise. Does it take a lot of planning? Look, my kind of firm belief is that change to your teaching practice should be incremental because teaching's like such an unrelenting job. And, you know, there might be times where you've got a huge amount of energy to completely overhaul your practice, but probably 99% of the time you don't. So I think in terms of planning with a big ideas approach, you just make tweaks and you might start with the assessment task or maybe you'll start with your exit ticket questions or the pacing of your topic. If you just start to integrate each topic with one or two little changes, over time, you're really going to have a much stronger approach to the big ideas overall. That does sound like such a good idea. Teachers get so overwhelmed by these ideas that are coming all the time. But what happens is that they become overwhelmed by the sheer quantity of work that needs to be done. And although we tend to delegate, Susie, you do this unit, Jono, you do that unit, everything does come on top of each other. And it's really, really hard. It's such a hard job. And I really think that this incremental approach to professional learning and changing your practice is so important. And I think it's so important for administrators to listen to that. So the questioning, you talked about questioning. How do these questioning techniques play a role in making the connections? And can you maybe give some strategies or examples of questions that focus on this comprehension and reasoning? Yeah, sure. So I see that there are three levels of questions that you can quite easily integrate into the existing tasks that you're doing. And these are questions that you can almost use with any skill and concept, but to help students to slow down their thinking, take more information in, connect their ideas. So let me take you through it. The first level is around observing. 
And typically you use this set of questions at the start, but also maybe once students have generated some ideas or answered a few problems of their own. So these sorts of questions to do with observing are what do you notice, what do you wonder, and also what's the same, what's different. What we're trying to do through these questions is to get students to just draw out the detail. Mathematics can be incredibly overwhelming because there is a lot going on, particularly once you start getting into abstracted forms of mathematics or different visual representations. We're asking a lot of students and some of that meaning in the mathematics isn't always obvious, okay? So what do you notice? What do you wonder? What's the same? What's different? Those questions help students to take in the detail. The second level of questioning is around justification and reasoning, okay? These are questions like, how do you know? And why doesn't this work? We want students to see that mathematics has a logic. Things aren't correct or incorrect because the book or the teacher tells them that's the case. Things are correct or incorrect because students can see the logic behind the idea. And so these two questions are getting students to just pause once they've got into an answer and think, hang on a second, does this actually make sense? Did I guess my way through this? And if I did, maybe that's fine, but can I then retrace my steps and kind of link the pieces together again? The third level of questioning is around generalizing. So it's taking, helping students to take their ideas even further into an abstracted, sometimes into an algebraic, but not always into an algebraic form. And these are questions like, does this always work? Are there any other solutions? How do you know when you found all the solutions? So it's kind of getting students to stick their head above the clouds and see that that one instance of a problem they've been working on is just one instance, but maybe there's a bigger general idea that they can draw from it. And I think once students get into the habit of being in that headspace, they, they'll naturally start to look for more connections, but they'll also start to see a structure to the way mathematics works, that you can go granular, but then you can also step back and look at the bigger picture and there's something to be learned from each of those levels. And speaking of existing connections, I wanted to tell you about my experience with one of your Facebook posts where you asked what is, and I'm not sure of the numbers, so I'll make them up, 374 divided by 11. Now, only a week or so before, you'd asked how we would solve, let's say, 27 times 11. For that one, I pulled out my classic trick of making the first number the hundreds and the last number the ones, then adding them together to find the tens. So 27 times 11, that's two hundreds and seven ones, and seven plus two equals nine, so it's 297. So then for your division one, I wondered if I could reverse my trick. That is 374 divided by 11, the three hundreds become three tens and the four ones stay there. So the answer is 34. But I did have to check that the middle number was a seven or it wouldn't have worked. So once I checked that I was right, a whole lot of questions came to me. Does this always work? Why does it work? What about if the numbers add up to 10 or more? What about three digit numbers? And the questions just flowed. And these are questions that would stimulate great discussion in the classroom. Yeah. And I think your experience across both of those problems, Leanne, is a really useful one for teachers to keep in mind that 
you start from a familiar place, you know, kind of comfortable territory where students can strategize and reason. And then you kind of twist it and shake it up a little bit. So you can still keep it pretty similar, but it's different enough so that it's not so straightforward. So the first time round was, let's say, 23 times 11, and students can do that, and maybe they know the 11 trick, okay, and they understand why the 11 trick works. And then the next time you do something like the 374 divided by 11, so suddenly they've got to look at it differently and say, oh, is this actually the same thing, but we're just looking at it back to front. And you're teaching the relationship between division and multiplication without just writing it on the board, that division is the opposite of multiplication. It's not just that dot point in your curriculum. It's something that's actually real to the students. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. I was talking to a teacher this morning, Alison, who was telling me a story about how she'd used one of the tasks uh, that she'd learned about from our online professional learning program. And she said she has a year six class and she'd been teaching them about factors and trying to get them to understand factor trees and she was using all these different methods and she just knew that it wasn't quite sinking in. And so she took this task to them. It's called crypto shifts. You know, at first glance, it doesn't have anything to do with factors and, you know, it looks more like a code breaker sort of puzzle. Anyway, she said her students loved it and they and she was sort of guiding them through the bits of the challenge and helping them to make sense of the strategies and she said by the end students understood what factors were they kind of didn't realize that what they were doing was to do with factors and so she added that bit in she helped them and she gave it a name to what they were doing and at that point she came back to the factor trees she said see this thinking you've been doing with the crypto shifts puzzle we can apply that exactly to factor trees and she said it was incredible that suddenly the connections were made. And I think Alison's story is really lovely because it highlights to us that we can try and take the most direct path to helping students to acquire new content. Often that's not going to be the most direct path for the student. Just because it is for us doesn't mean it is for the student. So she started in a place where it was much more comfortable and familiar for her students. And she used that to guide them and carefully introduce the new information that they needed. And it's much more fun too. I think so. So we've looked at some examples of fabulous experiences incorporating mathematical concepts and skills. Have you got any others that you want to share with us? Yeah, um, I was thinking about another problem uh, earlier today. And I I think sometimes when we talk about um, helping students to make connections across different areas of maths, it can seem like this big unwieldy task. Like we need this really fancy big problem and we need to plan it for ages and it needs to go on for lessons. But actually, I think really simple problems can do the trick as well. And sometimes problems without too much detail can be incredibly powerful. So I was thinking about like, what's an example of that? And not long ago, I was watching my daughter who's just turned to play with some Duplo box blocks and she was just like figuring out how to piece them together and as I was watching her I came up with this puzzle which is take three blocks and connect them in any way how many different combinations are there for how you can connect those three different blocks how do you know when you found them and so 
at, at first sight, this is a problem that's to do with kind of three-dimensional shapes, but it also introduces permutations. How many different ways can we combine these blocks? It introduces symmetry because some of those ways of combining the blocks look the same when you turn things around. And so symmetry becomes a way of cutting down your options. And it also becomes a problem about data management. How are you keeping track of all of the data that you're finding? What's an efficient way to do that? What sort of information is the right information to look at? And so this very small problem is suddenly making connections right across the curriculum. And the more we do that, the more we can help students to see that, again, it's not this linear subject of skills that we tick off, but it's this kind of necessarily connected field. That's mathematics. I've come across a number of students in my career who kind of arc up against this sort of teaching. So, for example, when we're doing algebra, why are we playing with blocks? I know it's something that I've certainly had when I've tried to introduce a lot of creativity. And it seems to be a problem in some of the more high-achieving schools where they'll turn around and say, why aren't we doing exercise 12B? The other class are doing it. Yeah, I think there are different ways that you can work through that with students. And it's interesting, some students will naturally gravitate towards that way of maths and you don't need to justify anything at all. Uh, but other students, particularly when they kind of thrive off the structure and rigidity, it becomes very hard for them. And so I think what's important is firstly creating a safe space. So if you're doing these sorts of more open and creative tasks, well, you still have parameters. And so you help students to understand the bounds that they're working with. I read this piece from Edward de Bono recently. So he's a philosopher, a psychologist, a writer, done a lot around creative thinking. And he wrote about how structure sets you free. And so I always come back to that quote now because it's this lovely reminder that in these situations where students are uncomfortable with creativity, they probably want a bit of structure. And so that's one part of it. But you also ask Leanne about like, ask why are we doing this? Well, a big reason why is because maths isn't black and white. There are all these important kind of edge cases and things that seem to work in one instance, but actually don't work in another. And so when we're just going through like practice question after practice question, we can often miss out on some of the most important and also fascinating ideas about maths. And so we need to find other ways of exploring, playing around with and pulling apart mathematical ideas. And that's where these creative opportunities come in. I wanted to share just one example that kind of helps you to think about like what these connections, when we talk about like a connectionist approach to mathematics, I think the follow-on question is like connections to what? And we want to connect to what students already know. And I run this activity with teachers when I'm working with them. And it, I'm going to try and run through a little bit of it here with you, Leanne. It's harder in a podcast space, but I think listeners will still get the idea. Imagine you're about to sit down for a two-part quiz. And the first 
you've got a list of statements that you need to memorize. I'm going to give you just some of these statements to give you an idea of what these would be like. So the first one is, John walked on the roof. The second one is, Bill picked up an egg. The third one, Frank flipped the switch. So I've got 10 statements all of that kind. Your job would be to study those statements only for a minute and then to answer a series of questions about each of those statements, okay? And there would be things like who walked on the roof, who picked up the egg, and who flipped the switch. And if you're listening, maybe you want to pause now and see if you can remember. That's part one, okay? Now, when I work with teachers, they almost always do horribly on part one. And so it's a bit of a setup, I've got to say. But then we go on to part two, and I'll read you again a sample for part two and see if you can kind of figure out where I'm going with this. So here, here's the first statement in part two. Antenna man walked on the roof. And the second one statement, Easter bunny picked up an egg. And the third one, Thomas Edison flicked the switch. And it's the same process. You study these statements and then you get asked who walked on the roof, who picked up the egg, who flipped the switch. And always, always, people do better on part two. Why? Because the situations we're dealing with connect to what they already know. It's not abstract information. It's information that's already meaningful for them. Now, because I always like to try the challenges that my guests pose, I tried to remember the first one and I was picturing my son-in-law, John, on my roof with my Uncle Bill, who actually fixed my roof once and he was picking up an egg from the skylight. The Frank was harder, but the alliteration helped. Frank flipped. Yes. Yeah. And that's it. When you don't have the existing connection in your mind, then you start to create a new one, exactly like you just did, Leanne. So thank you for stepping in perfectly like that. (laughs) And if you think about students in the classroom, when they don't understand a new mathematical concept that you're introducing to them, they start to invent a way to make sense of it for themselves. And in the moment, that can be fine. But then the more and more they need to do that, the harder and harder it becomes. And also the harder and harder it is to retain that information for any length of time. That's why we start with where they're already at. On that note, I had a situation the other day where I really had a moment of empathy with the student who hasn't made connections and is ready to give up and label themselves dumb. So I was trying to recall my quite serviceable high school French And after studying a bit of Duolingo, I tried listening to a very familiar book, Pride and Prejudice, in French, making that connection between the familiar and the unfamiliar, or so I thought. But I understood nothing. And I was so frustrated and dejected. And I ended up thinking, I just can't understand French. I'm hopeless. And I realised then that this must be what it's like for my students when I go through what I think is a brilliant explanation in maths, but I haven't actually enabled them to make the connections. So if, as you're saying, we start with the connections, it's going to make life so much easier for our students. Absolutely. Yeah, I think there are these really powerful mathematical approaches that we can take, i.e. thinking about the big ideas and forming connections that can shift students' experience of being in maths class dramatically. Not 
changing the fuzzy things around the classroom, how the classroom looks, giving rewards or, you know, all those sorts of things. I think like the mathematics itself can be the reward for students. Yep. And that, that joy of understanding. Absolutely. Sounds like we're on the same page about this, Leanne. We certainly are, Michaela, as always. Well, that's all the time we have for today's episode of Maths Talk. Thank you so much, Michaela, for sharing your expertise on this topic. It's been a thought-provoking discussion, and I'm sure our listeners will find it valuable. So how can our listeners contact you and find out more about teaching circles, connections at the heart of maths, or any of your other amazing passion projects? So listeners can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and I'll provide the links to those. And Leanne, as you mentioned earlier in our conversation, I have a email newsletter uh, where I send out weekly emails with different strategies, tools, and also mathematical tasks that teachers can use in the classroom. So I'll provide a link for listeners to be able to sign up to that newsletter. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks, Leanne. If you'd like to find any more information about what we've spoken about, go to our show notes. Also, leave your review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. You can also comment on our Facebook page. That's Maths Talk by AMSI Schools, Twitter at AMSI Schools, or contact me on mathstalk at amsi.org.au. And while you're on Facebook, go to Michaela's page and do some of her little problems because they are great fun. Thanks for listening and goodbye.